The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Mark chapter 3. Uh, we're c- concluding or continuing to go through rather the book of Mark for the next couple weeks leading up to Easter. Uh, as you turn there, just a couple of announcements for you. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Easter's three weeks away. Does that not just uh, blow your mind a little bit as far as things go? Uh, Easter spring is right around the corner. I know it doesn't feel like it. Uh, just for you KU fans, my wife who's at home with a couple sick kids said, uh, what colors are you going to wear today? Well, I wore all black for you because I know you KU fans are in mourning after your loss last night, so uh, I'll let that be what it is, but uh, I know, too soon. I'll, I'll, I'll stop with the KU jokes because you can laugh equally or more so about Missouri for sure. Uh, I do want to wish uh, Gilbert a uh, happy 28th birthday, brother. Uh, you are the uh, second oldest on our staff, so... Uh, um, no, you're the third oldest because I'm older than you. Uh, we have an office manager who's younger than all of us in spirit, but in age is a little bit older, but uh, Judy knows that for sure. So happy birthday, brother, as well. Thank you for leading us, Pastor, each week and well in worship. We appreciate that. And uh, John, if I can just say a special thanks to your family for lifting up my soul yesterday in worship. Uh, it, it was a joyous time to celebrate uh, the passing of Nellie, but also just to worship. And thank you for leading us in some old songs yesterday that led us very, very well, guys. Thank you. We're praying for you as well. So appreciate that very, very much. You know, the, I was trying to think of a great opening, and I had to go back to Charlie Brown. Who, lo- who doesn't love Charlie Brown and Lucy, right? So this topic today, the, the title of the sermon is, What Makes Jesus Mad?, and you, you say, whoa, that's a weird topic. How's Charlie Brown relate to that? Well, Lucy's involved, so if you know anything about Charlie Brown, you know, here it comes. So, you know, Charlie Brown in one of the Peanuts cartoons, um, Lucy says to Charlie Brown, I hate everything. I hate the world. I hate you. I hate the whole wide world. And Charlie Brown, being Charlie Brown as only he could say, said, but Lucy, I thought you had inner peace. Don't you have inner peace? I mean, isn't that what you told me? And Lucy replies, she says, I don't have inner peace, but I still have an outer obnoxiousness, which you see right now. So that's how she is. And many of us feel that way. We feel like the world sometimes is just something we need to hate. We need to be angry about everything like Lucy is right here. And Charlie Brown, you may recoil like he does because you feel like you know people like that, who are mad about everything, who are not optimists. They're, they're, uh, what's the word, pessimists? Uh, KU fans, you might, oh, sorry, I won't slip that way. I'll let that be. I'll let that be. But, you know, we feel that way sometimes, don't we? We think we have inner peace, but inside we're really just boiling over, waiting for something to spill. And that's how often we feel. And so as we come and we continue through Mark just for a couple more weeks before we hit Easter and a couple more topical sermons, I want you to know this instance we're looking at is the only time, the only time the word anger is ever equated back to Jesus in the same sentence. That's very interesting. Was Jesus like Lucy? Did she just fly off the handle like everybody else? Well, not quite. But there are other instances in the scriptures where Jesus was angry, righteously angry, perfectly angry as he was God. He cleansed the temple. You remember that, don't you? He went in and made a whip, and he single-handedly drove out the people from selling things. He 
said they turned his father's house into a den of thieves. And then he confronted the Pharisees. And I just put some quotes down here. You brood of, uh, I hope you don't talk like this at home, but you're brood of vipers, you blind guides, you whitewashed tombs outside you're pretty, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. But that's not how we see Jesus in today's culture often, is it? We don't see that part of Jesus and who he is, but the Lord is going to show us something through Mark that I think is very striking. But one thing you do need to remember, and, and Megan's going to put this up, the Lord is gracious, Psalm 145 says, and compassionate and slow to anger and rich in love. Aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful that he's rich in love? He's not poor in love. He's rich in love. He's abounding in love, as the other translations say. So what we will see today is not a Lucy-type anger necessarily, but what we will see today is that God reacts at something that fills him with anger. And friends, we need to make no apologies about what we're going to read today. In fact, we need to see it. We need to know it. We need to understand it. But what's interesting is, is that Jesus, as far as we know, never became angry with the non-religious people, the harlots, the tax collectors, the, the, the sinners, they all were reached out with arms open wide. So what made Jesus' blood boil? It was the religious people. Ooh, yikes. Those who played church and made his anger flare. Those who trifled with holy things. Those who uh, contaminated the house of God. Those who provoked the fury of the Savior tried to use God and his word and his ways as a way to means of personal gain. So what makes God angry? Why should we be angry about the things God is angry about? That's a great question. But as a reminder, as our big idea today, I want to remind us of this fact. As I was reading through this, we should be very careful not to grow an attitude of hostility and anger for the world that our God loves and for the people he plans for us to reach. What we are going to see today in Mark chapter 3 is that it is better to be an out-and-out out sinner, out in the pig pen, so to speak. And wasn't there a pig pen in Lucy and Charlie Brown as well? It's better to be out there than to be filled with religious pretense and spiritual hypocrisy. That's what we're going to see today. The goal of any church and the goal of our church is to have a church where we have a fellowship where any sinner looking for God has nothing to dread. And any person who's regular in our church ha doesn't have to worry about what's going on behind his or her back. Because that's exactly what the Pharisees were trying to do to Jesus and what we're going to see. Jesus reminds us that it's better to be a harlot and a tax collector than be a scribe or a religious person and simply be a Pharisee. And what causes Jesus to be angry is what we should be angry about. It's people who know the truth and marginalize the truth. They use the truth for their own special gain. They compromise the truth. They set it aside. They play church and defame the God in heaven. All to get in power plays within the church and they make a mockery of spiritual things. That's what makes Jesus angry, especially in this. But if you're here today and you are a long way off from God, a sinner from God, let me just remind you that the arms of the Savior are open wide. Wide enough that he gave his very life for you. If any man thirsts, Jesus said, let him come to me, for I will give him drink and give him rest. Isaiah 118, uh, my wife always reminds me of this verse, but it's a positive connotation, but our, our, our daughter Scarlett got her name from this verse. Come, let us reason, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they're red, they will be as white as wool or snow. Yeah, and also down in the verse, they'll be as white as snow. The invitation of our Savior is as far and as wide as sinners are. Therefore, he will bring them all in. He will pardon you if you're far away from the Lord from the top of your head, which some of you have less on your head than others. 
mind of that to the balls of your feet and everything in, in a complete, instant transaction. If you are far away from God today, he will say to you, your sins will be forgiven. Go and sin no more. But to those of us, perhaps, who are walking the Pharisee line, Jesus will play hardball for his glory in your life to point you back to him. So what makes Jesus mad? How do we get there? I want to look at five things today. We're just going to walk through this as we look through the gospel. We're going to look at five eyes. Yes, uh, we're Baptist preacher 101. We're going to look at the incident that caused Jesus to be angry. We're going to look at the interrogation, the, the questions that the Pharisees had of him. We're going to see his indignation, his anger come out in verse 5. Then we're going to see the imperative, the command that he gives us. And finally, we're going to see, and I love this word, it's not a good word, but the insurrection. Just say that five times fast, insurrection. But you know what? God reminds us in Mark that this gospel is so unique. We've been preaching through this since January. And what we see time and time again is not just that Jesus is God, although we've seen that, but we see how Jesus handles people and handles situations in ways that the other gospels don't speak to. And we need to see that especially today. If you're able and you're visiting or you're regular, we stand for the Lord's word in honor of it. If you're able to, will you join me in standing this morning in God's word as we begin this morning? Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'll be reading out the ESV version. It's, uh, I believe, on page 835 or 836 of the Blue Pew Bible. And God's word says this. Again, he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, that's the Pharisees and scribes, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm and to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he, that's Jesus, looked at them, the Pharisees, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out, and there's that key word in Mark, immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. What makes Jesus angry? We're going to look at that today, and I think it's going to be more positive than you know and than I know. Let's bow our heads as we pray this morning. Father God, this is your word. This is your holy word. This is your inspired, inerrant, infallible. Father, this is your, the word that has power. Father, it's not a man preaching that has the word necessarily. Father, it is your spirit working through uh, a simple simpleton like myself to know the power of the word spoken. Lord, let your spirit come upon us today. Lord, may the unction of the spirit be upon us that we may know the deeper revelations of Christ and love you more. But also practically, Lord, may we know what is good and what is not good as the Pharisees had trouble discerning even with all the laws. Father, thank you that you are a God that gets angry at sin, but thank you that in Christ it has been extinguished, quelched, once for all, because on that cross, every sin that we've committed, every punishment we deserve was fulfilled in Christ. Thank you, thank you. Father, give us wisdom today as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right. So the first thing we want to look at today as we walk through this gospel of what makes Jesus angry. Maybe you've never thought about that before. That sounds odd. But what makes Jesus anger actually goes back to verse 1. And again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. I think it's very telling of Jesus' ministry that he often went to the synagogue. 
Paul was very well known for going on the Sabbath day to evangelize in the temple and, and the other places when he was uh, ministering before the Jews. And often Jesus, being a, a, a rabbi, a traveling teacher, would be asked to teach or read the scriptures that they had to them in their dead religion. But what is a synagogue? Let's remind ourselves of that. A synagogue is a local gathering of people with at least 10 men, uh, 13 or above. You know a bar mitzvah. You've probably heard that phrase before. Uh, this was a place where uh, people could congregate and gather outside the main temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus made a habit of going there. Mark one twenty one. we preached on this about two months ago. Jesus went there to evangelize. Mark one thirty nine. he was going from synagogue to synagogue on the Sabbath day to share the message. Uh, Luke 4 tells us that Jesus read about Isaiah, the prophecy fulfilled within their midst. And so it's a regular practice of Jesus to go where the religious people are and the non-religious people are. But this time, he is forcing an issue. Jesus being God and Jesus being absolutely omniscient knows everything that's about to happen. He knows the incident before him is one that is going to be a big fire as he goes. If you go back to Mark chapter 2 for just a second, uh, the last couple of verses we read last week, this is about a week after Jesus went the week before. And you know, last week we read in Mark 2 at the end of the chapter, and Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of the man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So Jesus is, knows full well that what he is about to do, what he is going to do, is going to cause a lot of ruckus in these religious people's lives. It's going to be a big incident. So most of us today probably would have said, hey, let's meet on Friday, let's go to uh, Chick-fil-A, because they're not open on Sunday, and let's go talk about this and figure this out. But Jesus doesn't do that. He just goes right for it. He goes straight into it, and he says, and, and he brings up the man with a withered hand. Now, what is the withered hand? That's a great question. Tradition says that this man was probably a stonemason where his hand, he, the Greek text does not indicate that he was born this way, but it happened after the fact. So basically this man probably had an accident of some kind working. He had a withered hand, one good hand, one bad hand, and so there's, there's just no way that he can do normal life. I just want to take a special aside here. This is chasing a rabbit, and a commentator noted this. But isn't it always of Jesus to spend time with the special people of the day, the special needs people of the day, if you will, to use the modern phrase? Isn't that great? Uh, we have a son who has special needs, as you know, and uh, I just thank God that he cares not just for the rich and the powerful, but for puny other people like the rest of us who are out there. And notice what it says uh, here in verse 2, uh, the man with a withered hand, and they watched him. They watched him. Boy. Can you just see it happening? Can you just see the showdown like the old Wild West starting to happen right here? Jesus again enters the synagogue, and there was a man with a withered hand. They could have cared less about that man with a withered hand. I'm just going to be honest with you. Those religious people, they didn't care. They were watching Jesus. Mark chapter 2, verse 16, they watched Jesus when he was with the sinners and tax collectors. Jesus, how dare you with those sinful people? And last week, they said, why are you not doing what's lawful? Why are you not doing not lawful stuff on the Sabbath? Friends, they didn't go to the synagogue to worship. They came like a dog on a scent trail trying to get Jesus and trap him into doing something. They were dogging his trail and watching for dirt on him. They were like the P.I.s before P.I.s were even around. And can you imagine something more insane than trying to catch the Son of God in 
sin. Friends, you better have a better life goal because there's no thing or nothing that Jesus ever did that was without perfection, according to 1 Peter and so many other passages. Megan's going to put this up on the screen for you, but I want you to know, just before we continue on with this, friends, our church has differences. I think you know that. If I can be tried as I often are, there are KU fans, Rachel, there are even Oklahoma fans here, praise the Lord. There are superficial differences like sports teams, but there are differences among us. There are different political parties. There are different uh, whatever. There are a lot of differences among us, but although there are differences among us, the greatest thing that we have, church, for the world to see is exactly what the Pharisees were trying to snuff out, is our love for one another. That is our greatest apologetic. That is our greatest defense of the faith. It's not the great arguments of Ravi Zacharias or R.C. Sproul or some of these great guys who I love to read. But the greatest thing that we have in a watching world is our love for each other. It is good for us to keep this in mind. It is good for us to know that what offends the watching world is not uh, necessarily the sins of us Christians, but our unconfessed sins. The things that are so obvious to them that we don't confess or deny and our false appearances. Wherever we go, whatever we do, let us remember, like our master, we are being watched. That's not a conspiracy theory, by the way. That is truth. The thought should make us exercise a holy jealousy and pray, Lord, as I go throughout my day, may I be a good ambassador, may I be a godly ambassador for you to avoid even the appearance of evil. And above all, it should make us pray to be kept blameless in our tongues, our tempers, and everything that we do in our daily public demeanor. Because our Savior was watched, and he knows what it's like to be watched. And at the same time, he knows what it's also like to show grace, even while ministering to other people. Look back at verse 2. It says here, they watched Jesus. Why? To see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. So there's their, pur- there's their purpose. It's as plain as day. They, again, they could care less about this guy who's hurting. They don't care. They just want to make sure that they're the ones in control. That's what this is coming down to. The incident is, is that you take away these rules and they have nothing left to do. Uh, it's kind of like that kid who calls the bluff of a, a teacher when they're substituting and says, uh, you know, well, that's not how so-and-so does it. And then the, the substitute's like, whoa, I don't know what to do now. If you substitute before, you know that pressure. But what they do is the Pharisees and the religious leaders strain for the minor things of God. Why? So they might accuse Jesus. Friends, they looked at anyone who would come close to breaking their laws because they knew if they didn't have the power, they would lose all that they had. And look down at verse 3. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Notice Jesus didn't care. Jesus wants to set it straight. Jesus is not oblivious, and he's full well what's going on. He knows it's like taking a match and throwing it at a quick trip and just lighting the whole place on fire. That's what he knows. He does this, Jesus does, out of a love for this man, and he does it to make issue about a matter on the Sabbath day. Literally, this man is going to get up into the middle. It's not like... uh, You know, sometimes when you're disciplining your kids, you take them to the side as you should privately, not to shame them in public. Uh, But he's literally saying, get up here, uh, or use the wheel of of fortune. What is that? Uh, Price is right. Hey, you're the next contestant on, come on down, you know, and come this way. That's what he's saying. Get down here. He didn't say, let's go over in the corner and heal you over there and keep it private. He said, no, you will be made 
healed this day, and we will make this happen. So that is the incident I want you to see. And friends, be very careful. Remember that our greatest love for one another does not come through gossip. It does not come through backbiting. It does not come through false rumors. It comes by loving each other and being okay to talk to someone even when you don't have the right words to say. Because Jesus wants everything out in front as it should be for the church's witness. Notice, secondly, the interrogation that happens in verse 4. The interrogation. And we'll spend the next uh, three or four points on these last two things. But Jesus says to them in verse 4, he says, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were what? They were silenced. Jesus trapped them. He knew. They knew if they said, oh, it's lawful to do good, he could chase a rabbit and show them the wrong. He knew if they said it was bad, they, they knew, they were smart enough to know by common grace that they could not say a word. A wise teacher is the one who knows how to frame the issue. And so Jesus so many times uh, does not go through their secondary issues. He cuts right to the heart of matter and he does it in a masterful way. There are no options here. You either do good to save or you do harm to kill. Fail to do good is, is to do harm is what Jesus said. And that's what James 4.17 says. It says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. So is the purpose of the Sabbath then to do good or to do harm? Mark 2.27 that we read last week, Jesus said that the man was made for the Sabbath, not the Sabbath for the man. And so, uh, or the Sabbath is made for man, not the man for the Sabbath. But the purpose of the Sabbath is not to ensure uh, anything else, but to be free enough to serve others as we are called to serve. Jesus' question, is it, is it, is it okay on a, on a Sabbath day to do good? And, and I want you to go over, if you have your Bible, go over to Matthew chapter 12 for just a moment. Mark does not include this in this account, but I want you to see this. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 11. Matthew 12, 11. I want to read this for you. Mark gives the short version, the Cliff Notes version of what happened. But I want you to see what Jesus said in addition to this question that he was going to answer. Matthew 12, 11, it says, He said to them, Which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and let it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to them, he said to the man, stretch out, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against how to destroy him. What's the point? What is Jesus saying here is Jesus is saying it's always right to do good. It's always right to do good. You know, you get in that uh, great college debate if you were back in World War II, and you lived in Germany, and a, and a Jewish family came knocking on your door literally for their life. And there's a great debate on most college campuses. Would I, would I let them in or would I not? Friends, Jesus reminds us in, in, in crazy situations like that, as well as daily stuff, that it's always wrong to do what's wrong. It's always right to do what's right, no matter what day of the week it is, no matter how tired you are, no matter what situation may lie before you. If you know the right thing to do, do it. If you don't know the right thing to do, then pray about it, ask for help, but don't ignore it simply thinking it'll go away. But they were silent. They were absolutely silent. They had no good answer. They had nothing. They knew they'd hang themselves by the rope. And that is the reminder I want to throw at you today. 
the great application point. The gospel compels me to do good deeds and comforts me when I fail to do them. I cannot tell you how many times, even as a pastor, I've, I've missed opportunities to share the gospel. I've missed opportunities to do good one to a neighbor. And you've been there too, right? You understand that. You, God, use me today. And God brings a situation right in front of you and you just freeze up like Lot's wife did, like a pillar of salt in a sense, and you just stop right there like a statue. You ever been there before? You know that. But friends, we are called at every time to do good what is right. This is why we do not believe in situational ethics. What I mean by that, some people believe that if, you know, if you're in business and your boss asks you to cook the books, to, 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 to blow the numbers up so it looks better than it was the last year, Jesus would say that's not right even at the cost of your job. You, you know, pick whatever situation it is. Uh, well, I caught you doing 45 in the uh, 15 uh, mile per hour zone. Well, I was just worshiping Jesus and I was driving fast, cop. <sighs> Be honest. <laughs> Be honest. Ladies, maybe that even uh, doesn't do the flick of the hair thing if that's what you do. But Jesus reminds us that the gospel compels us to do good even when it's not convenient and even when we fail, there is great grace. Friends, I pray that you don't get so much law here that you feel saturated, weighed down, burdened by what the law says. We are a gospel-preaching church, and the gospel informs me that when I fail, Christ still loves me the same. And the gospel informs me that when I am not living up to what I should live up to, there is great grace, and praise God for that. Let's go on to number three. So we've seen the incident. He brings up the man, the interrogation. Jesus asks them, is it good or bad? And then he goes on to the indignation, the indignation. Look back at verse five. He says, uh, actually, let me turn back there myself here. Mark three, five. He says, uh, Mark writes, and Jesus looked around at them with anger. Can you just see the scene? You could cut it with a knife. They, it is so tense. What is Jesus going to do? And he's just scanning the crowd. He's auditing every soul. And he was grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored. I just want to look at the first part here about why Jesus got mad. You, that word anger you have in your Bible is the Greek word for a violent passion. It's orge. He didn't just have a flare-up. This wasn't just, oh, man, my favorite sports team lost. This was a continued passion a state of mind that was an excitement, the strongest of all passions. This wasn't just a, oh, I'm mad for a moment. This was something that Jesus, being the eternal God, had flare up within himself. This was a righteous, holy anger. And as he looked at them, he was absolutely filled with anger. Jesus got angry, but I thought Jesus was a, a lovey-dovey guy that just has his arms open wide. Yes, he is. He, he loves you. He cares for you, but Jesus is also holy Holy, holy. And as Jesus saw their sin, he saw hypocrites. Those who put on masks, literally is what the Greek word means, who were hardening their hearts. Remember, Jesus was moved with compassion even a chapter earlier to the harlots, to the tax collectors. He came to show them. He, was a, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He came to seek and to save the lost, Luke 17.10. But with the religious hypocrites and these Pharisees, he had little patience. He had much anger towards them. Why? Why? What makes Jesus angry? What made him mad? Because these people caused others to stumble. They corrupted the very gospel he was bringing. They defamed the glory of God. They blasphemed. They mangled and mutilated the truth of God. They polluted the, the very people of God. 
They were blind leaders leading the blind. And friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know God is not some office rocker, angry person up there in heaven just waiting for someone to take out. That's often how people view God. That's not what we're saying here. What we are saying and reminding is that Jesus receives sinners with arms open wide. Do you remember in John chapter 8, the story of the woman who was caught in adultery? And uh, they, bring him, they bring her to Jesus. You remember the story? They bring her to Jesus. And they say, basically, what are you going to do with her, Jesus? And Jesus starts drawing in the sand. You know, he was the first kind of etch-a-sketch, I guess it was, back there in the sand. And he did that sort of thing. And he starts etching in the sand, and, and there's great debate about what was in the sand, but most likely, I think the strongest argument is, John 8, that he was writing down the sins of the Pharisees, everything they had done, because they weren't perfect either. And he said that famous line, he who was out without sin, let him cast the first stone. And what did they do with those rocks? Yeah, they threw them down. They threw them down. And he told the woman, go and sin no more. Jesus absolutely takes in sinners, but he held these Pharisees in righteous, holy anger, responsible because they knew his word. Oh man, did they know his word. They were talking about his word since the very early days. They had shut off the kingdom of God from heaven, from people, and they put obstacles in front of those people because they didn't want them to get any advantage that they didn't have. Jesus told them in Matthew, you'd make twice as son as hell uh, you make others twice as much as a son of hell as yourselves. Jesus gets angry. Friends, and that is the application point Megan will put up there for us. What makes Jesus angry ought to make you and I angry. Notice I didn't say what your favorite political party says is wrong should make you angry, although there may be some biblical truth in those. Notice I didn't say what your favorite sportscaster says about the other team should make you angry. It didn't say, uh, you know, that someone rated your favorite restaurant with a one star and, you know, and the Google reviews went down to 4.6 or whatever it is. That's not what's being said here. Or your favorite singer on The Voice didn't make it through. Our heart ought to be open to reach out to lost sinners. But to those who are a stumbling block to the gospel, Paul said in uh, Galatians chapter 1, let them be anathema. And the word I'm about to use is absolutely biblical and it has a bad connotation in our thing, but he basically said to them, let them be damned. Let them be damned. If they are a stumbling block to people coming to Christ, let them be damned anathema forever. False teachers and charlatans of the gospel misrepresent the saving grace of God. And they do it because they don't want anything, that they don't want grace, they want to do it themselves. This is why every false religion, every false group is so wrong, church. Because we should be angry about people who stand up and preach a different gospel than what we have, but at the same time with compassion, mercy, and grace. These should provoke our anger or we are unlike our Savior. Why did Jesus get angry? Notice this. Jesus didn't just go off the rails. Look back at the verse. It says, and he grieved at their hardness of hearts. What made Jesus angry? Yeah, it was hypocrisy, but he also was grieving because these were the very people who were cold-blooded ritualists because they closed their heart to God and his word. They closed their heart to God and his need, uh, people's needs, and they closed their heart to the truth. These were the people, much like ourselves, who attend church almost every Sunday, who go and come and study and go to Bible study here and memorize there. 
literally the verb tense could be translated, if, if my Greek is correct, and I'll look to some of my other guys for those who know this better, but his anger was momentary, but his deep-seated grief was continuous. His anger was momentary but for a moment, but his grieving over his people, God being so compassionate here as he observed them doing what they did. So let's move on. We've seen the incident. We've seen the interrogation. We've seen the indignation. Look at the imperative. Look at the last part of verse 5 and uh, kind of the start of verse 6 there. He was grieved at their hardness of hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. There's the imperative. There's the command. He put out your hand for all to see is literally what it means. Don't, don't, remember he said, get up in the middle. Don't go in the corner. Now stretch it out. And guys, let's be honest here. This is a withered hand. I, I, my wife is a nurse, bless her heart. I don't know how, if you, if you can handle blood, praise the Lord. I look at that stuff and I pass out and I'm in the hospital myself. I and mean, that's just how I am. Many of you all can do that stuff. Just like he has a withered hand. I mean, if this is not, uh, you know, I've always wanted to be a hand model. What a great job that would be. You ever thought about that? You get, someone takes a picture of your hand, and ooh, that's pretty, you know, and they don't have to see your face, they just see your hand. I've always wanted to be a hand model. Matt, I think you were a hand model in the youth group one week or something, if I remember that correctly. But you know what? This hand was not the hand that you see at the uh, uh, K Jewelers or something like that, or Jared, whatever it is. This is a mangled, withered, messed up hand. That, it's gross. I mean, let's just be honest about it. It's gross. But Jesus says, put it out there. Stretch it out. Put it in the middle. And Jesus could have said, put it in your pocket, you know, kind of do one of those things, put it in your pocket and go home. But no, he says, stretch it out. That's the command, the imperative. He's intentionally forcing that issue, that, that match on the flame between true religion and false religion. No one there could possibly miss this. And there is a false truth of works and grace in Christ. But he, and what did the man do? Did he say, whoa, Jesus, that's a little too much for me. Look about what he said, guys. It says right here. He did what? He stretched it out. And what happened? He was healed. Wow. Not only is Christ the Lord of the Sabbath, but he healed him instantly, completely, and holy. W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy. And he was healed by divine power. Friends, the Savior has concentrated his plight of this poor man, and by means of his power and compassion, he performed the cure not in a dark corner, but so all could see. I, I don't know what that was like. I, you know, those Hollywood kind of uh, religious movies, they kind of, you know, it's like a frame-by-frame frame thing. You see the hand. I don't know how it worked, guys. I, I won't even get in there. But he's healed. What is the application out of this? Sometimes when God removes things in our life, it's only so that we might hold more tightly to what he's already given us fully, which is himself. This man can't work. He's begging. He's trying to do everything he can do to make life work. And he finally realizes that Jesus is the Lord. He trusts him enough to put out his... I mean, can you imagine what... what okay, if you've, ever had, I, if you've ever had acne or things, you know, skin rash, you know, we try and cover ourselves with shawls or put glasses on or whatever it is. You know how awkward that is socially. This man's walking around with a withered hand, nasty as it was. How, and in the Jewish laws, that would have been the most... Ugh, it just would have been gross. And what we know is that this man didn't care anymore. He saw Jesus for who he was, and he just went, whoa! Like that kid who always answers all the questions in class, you know? The one, pick me, pick me, pick me, pick me! Immediately, 
boom, immediately, boom, and he's healed, just like that. What an amazing God we serve. We're sometimes made to find true contentment in God, not by what he gives, but what he takes away. And this man had found that he couldn't do anything himself, but what he found is, is that he had only hope in Christ because he saw him for who he was. I don't want to spiritualize the text, but what is withering in your life today? What is something that by faith you need to, in a spiritual sense, stretch out and give to God? Is it your spiritual passion? Is it your love for the local church? Is it your relationship with someone within the church? The Lord still says today, stretch out whatever it is, and I will heal it in my time and in my way. Let's move to the last point here as we get ready to close. And I know uh, you know, when the pastor says time to close, that means another 40 minutes of preaching, right? So uh, praise the Lord. But uh, we'll, we'll look at the last one, the insurrection, and just a couple application points as we close. Look back at verse 6. Seeing the incident, seeing the interrogation, the indignation, and the imperative, and finally, here the insurrection. Verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. They didn't sit back like you and I would have said and said, whoa, that's pretty amazing. They went out and they immediately said, we got to take out this guy. Bring in, the, uh, bring in the mercenaries. Let's get this guy taken out and get him done now. The same sun that melts the snow also hardens the clay. And the same son of God who melted this man and, and to the fact that his hand was healed as it was, restored, hardens the heart even more, just like Pharaoh. They went out. They were humiliated. They were defeated. They were, they were publicly put to shame, and yet they held counsel. What an odd couple this was. I don't know which political group you are, and friends, I realize in the body of Christ that can be many, but you think of the most liberal person, most secular person you know, and that is what this group, the phrase is the Herodians. You have the most conservative, in modern terms, the most conservative evangelical Christian is now a strange bedfellow with the most liberal, secular group. That's how bad the Pharisees wanted this man killed. They didn't care what the cost was. They were going to take Jesus out. In fact, they say there in verse, uh, at the end of verse 6, it says so that they could pat him on the back and say, thank you, Jesus, for a great display of God's power. It was to destroy him. Friends, that is the application point. Many people have a head full of Bible, but a heart full of unbelief. There are so many people walking around that can quote, they can, they can make a trivial pursuit and jeopardy look like child's play because they're just that smart. But they are so like the Pharisees. There's so much unbelief running in them that they will make an unholy alliance and a strange coalition with whoever they can because that is what they trust and know. Check your heart as we close. Let me just give you three quick application points as we look at this. Friends, the first thing I want you to remember today is that we need to make the same distinction Jesus makes with people. Sounds so easy, doesn't it? Sounds so, so easy to do. But one thing we need is to remain soft and gracious and gentle towards anyone who walks in this church and anyone who's already a part of this church. Always assume the best about people. Don't assume the worst. Assuming the worst about people causes a church to do this. And we want a church to go like that. 
Extend the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ who've been trampled down in this world. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Search them for pity. Search them out for pity, sorrow, and the grave. Those who are out-and-out sinners, those who are those in the pig pen, we need to put our arms around them and seeing their life restored. Darren, does that mean that we trade in all doctrinal truth just to let anyone in who wants to come in? Friends, we never sacrifice the truth of God's word, right? But we never sacrifice the compassion of God that goes with that as well. But there are those who are Pharisees who stand in pulpits and masquerade the word of God. There's one of them who smiles as big as Texas, man, and he, he makes a whole bunch of money and is in a former uh, professional arena down there. And he holds up the Bible every Sunday. This is God's word. I will follow what it says I'll follow. I'll do what it says I can do. But then he goes and he preaches filth nonsense that is nothing of the scripture. Friends, we have to be careful to guard what we believe, but also, as Jesus did, openly embrace everything that comes our way. We need to have compassion and patience and forgiveness, but, friends, we also need to be angry about those who teach a false gospel. I hope that you hear that when, uh, I hope that when you see Mormons, with respect, knocking on doors, that that just makes your blood boil, and a holy jealousy to pray, God, guard the house of those people they're getting ready to go into. Because we hate Mormons? No. But because the truth they have is a false gospel. That sounds harsh, but friends, what if a Mormon came into our church? Would we welcome him in? Absolutely. But we would stand on the rock-solid foundation of God's word, as Jesus did, that there might be a righteous anger in us that extends through that, a grieved heart of compassion, just like Jesus had. I pray at Tower View Baptist Church we are known not by just what we teach, but by who we let in our church. Yes, we need to be very careful about who we let be a member. And I want to thank God for uh, membership and all those things. But friends, our, the church, as Tim Keller has well said, the church is not a uh, pristine hall for, uh, for basically a statues of saints. It's a hospital for people who need Christ. I'm grateful for our church that so believes that. Grateful for our church who, who, who wants to hold up the lordship of Christ, but also the compassion of Christ as well. So, secondly, we not only do we need to show great grace, but we also shouldn't judge Christianity because of a few Pharisees. Uh, just a little plug for tonight, we, we do Facebook Live every Sunday night uh, on our Facebook page, Tower Reviews Facebook page. This question came up about, uh, basically the question was, well, I'll never go to church because there's hypocrites in the church. Well, don't go to Quick Trip. Don't go to hy V. Definitely don't go to CC's because there's a lot of hypocrites in there, true, because they're selling out good pizza for false pizza or something like that. Look, those who always come to church and they say, look at those hypocrites. I can't go there. I will never go back there. Well, you can go to church with a few hypocrites in this life or you can go to hell with all the hypocrites who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And I'm pointing all fingers and all digits, all 20 of them at myself as I say that. I'd rather go a few years with people who claim the name of Christ, but by, even though they stumble, but are covered in a multitude of sins than to go with people who have no knowledge of who Jesus is. Friends, you can never go any place without being hypocrites. Even Royals fans are hypocrites. Oh, whoa. Yeah. We're going to win the World Series this year. Man, we lost our first game in April. I'm, let, bring on the Chiefs, you know. You know how this goes. Sorry, guys. Let's call our bluff for what it is. Look, 
Every church is going to have hypocrites. Every group is going to have hypocrites. But friends, don't judge a church by a few Pharisees in the congregation. And even, pastor, I'm going to, I'm going to have Pharisaical days. But praise the Lord, there is great evidence of salvation, Hebrews 12, that he disciplines me and shows me that I am his by grace. The Pharisees aren't going to heaven. They're bad fish among good fish, Jesus said. They're tares among wheat. They're goats among sheep. But I thank the Lord that God has given us a church where there are so many good fish in one boat. I thank God that, but even when you become a church of our size, we're growing steadily. There will be a few hypocrites known to God, but if you sit by one, it'd be wrong for you to assume that the whole church is like that person. I'm not pointing out anyone individually. I'm just saying generally. If you're here today and you say, I'm never coming back because there's hypocrites in the church, well, then you better go live as a hermit out in a cave somewhere like uh, uh, Tom Hanks on Castaway because that's about all you get with that type of logic. And finally, if you're here today, let me close with this. Do you not see that Christ desires you good and not harm? Do you not see that if you were to commit your life to him, if you were to give your life to Christ, that he is not to harm you, but he wants to help you. He wants to save you. He wants to deliver you. If you would commit your life to Christ, the love and compassion not only forgives your sin, but he leads you on. Only a fool would not give his life to Christ. Even 10,000 lives would not be given to him if we had that many but all that you are, you must repent. You must believe the gospel. You must believe that he is who he said he is. You must believe that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. Say, Darren, I know I'm a sinner. Well, this devil knows he's a sinner too, and he's pretty good at doing it. It's not just acknowledging you're a sinner. It's seeing Christ for who he is. How do you know you're a Christian? You know you're a Christian because he's done such a work in your heart that no matter what you do, you just want to know more of him. You want to be around him more. You want to spend time with his people. You want to share him like a new mama. Come to save and not to kill is what Jesus said. He come to, to do good and not to harm. It's free and it's been paid by all. If you refuse that, then go stand with the Pharisees. But all of us over here, we want to drink deep of the gospel well. Jesus says it's limitless. What a great supply it is. What a great Savior we have. Will you pray with me as we close out this morning?